0: Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Repeating once again our top story, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has been removed from power, and there are tanks now in the streets of Moscow. Vice president in the said, early 90s, says, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, president. hundreds of thousands of Jews immigrated from the former USSR to Israel. The effects of this mass migration could be felt immediately.
1: In just one year, in 1990, rent prices tripled and the housing market, especially in larger cities like Tel Aviv, Jerusalem and Haifa, was really stretched beyond capacity. So as a result, this really forced many immigrants to seek a residence on the edge of Israel's geography where rent was cheaper and where they crossed paths with
0: Mizrahi Jews. This is Alex Mushkin, a fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan and soon to be an assistant professor of comparative literature at Koch University in Istanbul. The Mizrahi Jews he's referring to mostly immigrated to Israel in the 1950s from the Middle East to North Africa and were forcibly settled by the state in dusty development towns in the country's periphery. When ex-Soviet Jews settled in these same areas several decades later, the story goes, the two groups clashed. Typically
1: the encounter between these two groups have been understood as A story of hostility, violence, and competition over limited jobs and resources. If you
0: look at newspaper articles, literature, and visual art from that time, not to mention scholarly work, you'll find that there was a lot of tension and even outright violence between the two groups, Mushkin says. It's easy to see why. Because the Russian-speaking Jews arrived and they were looking for
1: jobs, trying to navigate And the Mizrahi Jews felt that Russian-speaking Jews is like the new wave of Ashkenazi people coming into Israel and will be displacing them from the jobs and upward social mobility that they managed to achieve in the past 30 years. So in a way, both groups kind of saw each other as rivals and antagonists and as competing for the same things.
0: But as Mushkin's research shows, when it comes to the relationship between Mizrahi and ex-Soviet immigrants to Israel, there is a lot more to the story.
1: So in my research, uh, which builds on the recent work by the sociologist Anna Plaszewski, I demonstrate how day-to-day contacts between Russian-speaking immigrants and Mizrahi Jews both resulted in animosity, but also led to close social ties and intercultural fusion. This intercultural fusion is what interests me. And one of the consequences of this new proximity was the fact that Russian-speaking Jews learned what it means to be Israeli from their Mizrahi neighbors, adopting their ideas, tastes, traditions, and cultural forms.
0: Not only did they learn how to be Israeli from their Mizrahi peers, Mushkin says, they also learned how to be Jews. After a century of forced assimilation under Soviet rule, Russian Jews had lost much of their religious and cultural identity.
1: So when they came back to Israel, they were reinventing themselves
0: as Jews
1: uh, by looking at their Mizrahi, traditional Mizrahi neighbors. And this is a story of communal affinity and cultural affinity between the two groups that is not very often told in Israeli culture and society.
0: One of the ways we can see the Mizrahi influence on post-Soviet Israelis, Mushkin says, is in the world of poetry. He's specifically interested in the impact of Ars Poetica, a literary collective that burst onto the scene in 2013. The name involves a play on words, referring both to the ancient poem Ars Poetica and to the term Ars, which comes from the Arabic word for pimp. But
1: in Israel, it is a pejorative label for Mizrahi men, uh, that paints them as aggressive, low class, and educated. Uh, and this blending of high and low and reclaiming the politically loaded term ours is precisely at the, at the heart of this movement, whose agenda is the opposition to Ashkenazi literary hegemony, amplification of Mizrahi voices, and actually production of non elitist poetry, poetry that would be accessible, egalitarian, and understandable, you know, poetry that talks to an audience directly.
0: A good example, Mushkin says, is the poem Medinat Ashkenaz, or State of Ashkenaz, by Roi Hassan. Here's Mushkin reading the opening lines of an English translation. In the state of
1: Ashkenaz, I am mufleta, I am hafla, I am respect, I'm lazy. I'm everything that wasn't here once upon a time when everything was white. I'm the destruction. I'm the slaughter. I'm the armed fucking robbery. The crook with a kippah. I'm a pimp. I'm a clapping hands. Cheap music. Low culture. Low grade. I'm a stubborn brute and a pain in the ass. I'm a liar.
0: Because racism is a relic of the past. And long dead. Even in these few lines, Mushkin says, it's possible to see many of the themes and features of Ars Poetica. We can see how
1: Hassan catalogues the slurs and stereotypes that are hurled at Mizrahi, Jews, and Israel, just this depicting a situation where everything Mizrahi is coded as inferior and secondary to the supposedly superior Ashkenazi and European. So with this, the poem illustrates, it looks to me, how Mizrahi identity is tempered its recourse to some ethnic stereotypes, cliches, like mufleta, which is my Jewish fried pastry, chafla, which is Arabic for party, rhetoric of criminality, and supposed Levantine laziness. And so the poem brings into open this experience of racial oppression and institutional discrimination and actually seeks to move beyond those. And I think th- this is why it's so illustrative
0: of what Ars Poetica's agenda is. Many of the ex-Soviet Israeli poets who've been most influenced by Ars Poetica, Mushkin says, come from what's known as the 1.5 generation, a term used by sociologists who study immigration.
1: But in Israel, it has been popularized by the sociologist, Leslie Sajemenik, as a way to differentiate between the immigrant experience of children and young adults, both from the experience of their parents, the first generation, and that of their younger siblings who were born in the countries of arrival, the second generation.
0: The poets whose work Mushkin studies belong to this generation. They were born in the Soviet Union and moved to Israel in the 90s as children or teenagers. This sets them apart from their parents and younger siblings. What makes them unique is their bicultural
1: makeup, combining Russian-Soviet home culture with actually socialization in Israeli school, army, universities, in the Hebrew language.
0: Another thing that distinguishes these poets, Mushkin says, is that they chose to write in Hebrew and, as he says, to reinvent themselves as Israeli poets. Nevertheless, Mushkin says, scholars and critics have typically seen their work as an outgrowth of Russian poetry disconnected from Israeli culture. Their works
1: has been analyzed as an example of some uniquely Russian cultural expression, with reference to post-soviet nostalgia, soviet jewish past as form of uniquely russian protest and subversion and more or less the common thread that runs through the, these is the sense of incongruity between this poets and normative Hebrew language, culture, and
0: society. Mushkin says that he has also analyzed the work of these ex-Soviet poets in this way. More recently, though, he started to appreciate how these poems are expressions of Israeli culture and of Hebrew poetry. One of the things that made him shift his perspective was hearing interviews with some of the poets where they talked about influences on their work.
1: For example, in one interview, Rita Kogan said point blank that she actually start writing poetry after going to Ars Poetica evenings and hearing this powerful, powerful, in-your-face poetry that is not afraid to talk about social issues, that is not afraid of hiding behind a metaphor and actually
0: tells how it is. But Mushkin has also analyzed the poems themselves, and he's found that ex-Soviet Israeli poetry and Ars Poetica have a lot in common.
1: Both groups express protest against discrimination, critique of Israeli establishment, and actually blur the lines between poetry and activism. It is also performed poetry, which is very important. It's not a poetry that you necessarily read at a book. Many of the poems have been published, but... First and foremost, it is performed poetry that is supposed to trigger a reaction
0: from the audience. The work of Rita Kogan is a good example, Mushkin says. Kogan was born in the Soviet Union in 1976 and immigrated to Israel in 1991. Here's Mushkin reading an excerpt from his English translation of her poem, Etse Ashua Lo, or Fur Trees Aren't. Our
1: fir trees accost your eyes. Our names confuse your tongues. For you, we are a Russian circus. Submissive women, drinking men, old men in medals, old women with mops, boys who excel in physics, girls who are sluts. Fuck off, I'm telling you, with your national project, with your melting pot, with your normal names, with your Arik Einstein nostalgia. Don't come to my Russian circus because I'm a submissive man and drinking woman, an old man in a parking lot, an old woman on a swing, a boy in a tutu skirt, a girl who codes in python. We all dance horror to the sound of pussy riot.
0: Mushkin sees a lot of parallels between these lines and the poem by Roi Hassan that he read from earlier.
1: Like uh, Roi Hassan's The State of Ashkenaz, Rita Kogan's poem also starts by listing all the stereotypes that Russian speakers are subjected to in Israel, perceiving them as alcoholics, promiscuous women, stem prodigies, cleaning ladies, World War II veterans, uh, and Christmas celebrating goyim. Instead of silently accepting the stereotypes, the speaker fights back, right? In the second stanza, we have the strong denunciation of mainstream Israeli society, dramatized by the fuck-off. And here, like in Hassan's poem uh, that I read earlier, the speaker has had enough apologizing for her difference, which is the main project of this Russian-Israeli one5 verse. And so she reclaims this moniker Russian circus, just like the reclaiming of ours is done in Ars Poetica, by embracing this stereotype as a collective identity of Russian Israelis that is uttered at the start of the poem, but here it evolves into this collective portrait that resists difference.
0: This reclaiming of their roots is important for the 1.5 generation of ex-Soviet Israelis, Mushkin says, who had such a difficult time integrating into Israeli society as children and teens that they rejected their heritage.
1: They were so teased about being Russian that the first 10, 15 years, they just tried to became Israeli. They stopped speaking Russian language. They were ashamed of their parents, of their clothes, of their culture. And only in their 30s, they're starting back to reclaiming who they are and somewhat Ironically, at this moment when they became full Israelis, when they speak Hebrew much better than Russian because they have not spoken in that language except to their parents for many, many years, and at this moment when they start realizing, well, actually, there is something to be reclaimed here.
0: The work of the 1.5 generation poets has been largely derided by the older generation of ex Soviet immigrants, who accuse them of either peddling stereotypical
1: images of Russianness, being agents of the left wing, or simply producing quote unquote bad poetry.
0: Mushkin thinks his work helps explain this generational rift.
1: What I want to show is, yes, actually, Reeve Kogan's and Eber's poetry does not conform to the trends of Russian poetic tradition. It is not marked by a strong presence of rhyme and meter, and Russian poetry still rhymes to this day. And it does not enter into conversation with the Russian literary echo chamber. And it is actually inspired more by Hebrew poets, by American black culture, and a wide catalog of literary sources that the older generation just might not be able to appreciate. And so the rejection of the older generation might actually signal that the artist of 1.5 generation became too Israeli for the Russian street.
0: More broadly, Mushkin thinks his work prompts us to rethink our entire concept of Jewish identity.
1: I think we tend to think of Jewish identity as something stable, something that is unchanging and for us time and space. And I think what my research illustrates is actually the Jewish identity is a work in progress, is something constructed, and especially for immigrants. There is a whole story of repatriation, of how Jews coming back to their homeland. But the story that I want to tell is that it's people who coming to a new place and trying to figure out who they are, and they do doing it through encounter with other people, other groups that they see in front of them.
0: You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Jeffrey Weidlinger. Jen Richler is the lead producer. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like the show, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening.